turn now to the second portion of the red, Gospel of John, <clears throat> chapter 20. And at the beginning of that chapter, we read, <clears throat> First day of the week, cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre, or from the grave, and so on. <clears throat> now, this incident occurred in the immediate aftermath of our Lord's death. And we can imagine, to some degree at least, how lost and how confused these uh, disciples and the followers of the Lord must have been. Despite Old Testament prophecy um, informing them of his death and of his resurrection, and how clearly he himself taught before he died that this would be the outcome, yet when he died, they really struggled, struggled to understand, struggled to get their heads around the fact that he was no longer with them as far as they could see. Now, these people understood the connection between, for example, sacrifice and forgiveness, the connection between blood and pardon. They understood all of that, but they couldn't seem to join the dots between all of that and their amazing friend, Jesus of Nazareth, and his death. They just couldn't seem to join those dots. So his death would have been, and must have been, devastating news for 99% of his followers. Hardly any of them seemed to understand that it was necessary and that it was inevitable. Look at verse 9. They knew not the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. I suppose Mary of Bethany must have been the closest to understanding what was going on. You remember what Jesus said of her when she anointed him in the narrative recorded in John chapter 12. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. So she seemed to have grasped something of what was going on, certainly more than any of the disciples. Then when Jesus told Peter and James and John, and he told them very specifically, as for example, when they um, had been with them on the Mount of Transfiguration, and just before they made their way back down that mountain, this is in Mark chapter 9, when he spoke to them of his death and resurrection, they questioned one another what the rising from the dead should mean. They didn't have a clue what he meant. However, the death and resurrection of Christ was the most significant development since the six days of creation. The most significant development 
since six days of creation. And furthermore, in developing world history, nothing will ever match his death and resurrection until the day of judgment. So you've got these three pivotal points in the human story. The six days of creation where man himself was brought into being. Then you have the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then you have the day of judgment. Three pivotal points in the human story. And that's partly why God saw it necessary to send an angel to the graveside of Christ. They were taught, and they were well taught, not just by the words of Jesus himself, but by many instances of Old Testament prophecy. Yet, the angel had to ask them, this is in Luke 24, why seek ye the living among the dead? Do you not realize he's not dead? Not any longer. He's alive. Now our calendar reflects that reality by marking the resurrection of Christ as the Lord's day. The switch had to take place from the Sabbath to the Lord's day. So as we gather here from Sabbath to Sabbath, from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, we don't just come to worship God, great as that privilege and that honor might be. We come to celebrate, to celebrate that empty grave, to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's what the Lord's Day is about, in, to a great degree at least celebration of the risen Christ. And that's who we are trying to worship here this evening, the risen living Savior. Now, God ensured that after Jesus rose from the dead, that over a period of 40 days, that hundreds, literally hundreds of people saw him, witnessed the fact that he was indeed alive. They saw and heard and engaged with the risen Christ in a whole lot of different situations and circumstances. And after meeting him, two of them declared, after conversing with them, or perhaps it was more him conversing with them, they declared, did, this is in the famous words in Luke 24, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way. Now, my friends, is that not what we look for when we come to church on a Sabbath morning and a Sabbath evening? Isn't this what we long for? Isn't this what we yearn to have that heart-burning experience while we have communion with the Lord Jesus Christ and he with ourselves. Well, let's study then this first sighting 
of the risen Christ. Let's meet, first of all, this lady, Mary Magdalene. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, to the sepulchre. Another word for a grave. Now, we know from uh, Mark uh, 16 that two other women were here as well. Joan only might mention Mary, but there were two other women with her. Uh, Mary, the mother of James and uh, Salome. And as they walked towards the graveyard, they began pondering a question. This is in Mark 16, verse 3. Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? This was a burden to them. Little did they know that God was one step ahead of them, even in that matter. But it's highly unusual, don't you think, to find uh, this kind of focus on women in a world of men. The predominant focus in the culture of that day was on the men. It was a masculine society. The males were always to the fore. So God almost takes us by surprise in making a woman or women the first to visit this grave. And in making this particular woman the first to see the risen Savior. Nobody would have imagined that. Not only would we expect the focus to be on a male, but we would have expected the best of males to be the first to see the risen Savior. Perhaps John, the favorite disciple. But not only did God insist on focusing on a woman, he chose a strange example for this awesome moment. We imagine that if a woman had to be chosen, that God would have chosen his mother, perhaps, or his great friend, Mary of Bethany. Why didn't God choose her? You would think from a human point of view, at least, either of these would have been better suited for this privilege. But doesn't God always insist on reminding us, your ways are not my ways. Your ways are not my ways. So here he chose not any woman, but a former demonic woman to be his first witness. How incredible is that? Mark 16, Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. When only one devil tempted the Lord Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness, it left him so exhausted, God had to send an angel from heaven to strengthen him. What a nightmare for this poor woman to have been tormented with seven devils and for who knows how long. 
But we can't imagine, can't we, her sheer relief at regaining her sanity, regaining the peace of mind that she longed for, regaining normality when Jesus Christ freed her, liberated her from the clutches of Syria. And we can imagine also her sense of indebtedness to Christ, her Redeemer. And I think her attitude and her mindset is well summed up in the experience of another woman who felt indebtedness to Christ. This is what we read about her in Luke 7, verse 47. Her sins, whoever this woman was, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Oh, how readily we can apply that to Mary Magdalene. And for Mary Magdalene, no expression of love to Jesus Christ could have been too much. So here, instead of being at home with her family, she chose to be at the graveside of her friend. Now, I will suggest to you, my friends, it's no easy thing, even for a man, to visit a graveyard at night. Graveyards, in my opinion at least, they're spooky places. It's not, the, it's not a place I would readily go to in the middle of the night. Far less for a woman. But she was there for one reason. She was there for one reason only. She believed that Jesus Christ was there. Despite how confused she was about his death, she believed that the man who redeemed her from the clutches of Satan was lying in that grave. And she wanted to be where he was, even if it was a graveyard. She had become a devoted follower of Christ. She dedicated her life to serving him. So whatever reason others could give for being at the grave, in the graveyard at night, Mary Magdalene was driven by a sense of love and a sense of indebtedness. And yet, despite all of that, we shall see that her mind was not clear on why he should have died. And her mind was not clear on his inevitable resurrection. And I think that makes her love to Christ even more mysterious. Now, I think this woman has so much to teach us. So much to teach us. And I can only apologize for how little I'm going to take out of this. If a once demon-possessed sinner can rise to the inner circle of Christ's followers. Why can't you? Why can't anyone? Regardless of one's past, regardless of one's sins, why can't anyone? Mary Magdalene also teaches us, if we are seeking Jesus Christ as our Savior, we must be where Jesus Christ is to be found. That's essential, my friends. We have to be where Jesus Christ 
is to be found. Now, for Mary Magdalene, that was a graveyard. For us, 2,000 years later, it's here. It's this church or places like this where the gospel is being preached Sabbath morning, Sabbath evening. Now, I know that God can meet with you anywhere. He can meet with you washing your dishes in the kitchen. He can meet with you driving your car. I know that. But he hasn't promised to meet you in the kitchen. And he hasn't promised to meet you driving your car. But he has promised to meet you here. Where the two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I. And whoever you are here this evening, my friend, believer or adherent, know this. You are in the presence of Jesus Christ here this evening because his spirit is here and his spirit is the spirit of Christ. We often hear the phrase borrowed from the story of blind Bartimaeus, Jesus Christ is passing by. Oh, my friend, he's not passing by here. He's here. And he will remain here as long as there are two or three worshipping him. Pray, my friends that you will have an encounter with him here this evening. Let me move on to Mary's struggle to understand the resurrection. Verse 2. They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. These are our heartbroken words to Peter and John. And our sentiments reveal to us her limited understanding. She came here sincere in intention, but with wrong expectations. Sincere in intention, but with wrong expectations. She assumed that Jesus still lay in that grave. Now, notice her words again. They have taken him away. As far as her mind could grasp, others had done this. He couldn't do it himself. They have taken him away. Now, isn't it strange? Mary Magdalene knew that Jesus raised others from the dead. She was probably one of the witnesses at the grave of Lazarus. But what her conundrum was this. How could her friend raise himself from the dead? It was one thing to watch him in his majestic glory, standing at the grave of Lazarus and saying, Come forth. It's another thing altogether. Himself rising from the dead. Now all his followers knew that Jesus had predicted this in his teaching. And he did so more than once. However, perhaps it's not surprising that they found the teaching on resurrection so enormously difficult. In fact, beyond their grasp. That's, I don't find that surprising at all. You see, my friends, life beyond the grave, in any sense, it's quite simply not a subject our minds are capable of grasping. 
life beyond. Or we imagine plenty, but we cannot simply grasp what is beyond that grave. We can only imagine it. Yet sometimes, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to say next, sometimes faith must overrule our intellect. Faith must overrule our intellect. What do I mean by that? Well, our understanding on some biblical topics is to a degree limited. We can grasp so much of it, but then we hit, as it were, a brick wall. Take, for example, the Trinity. I believe intellectually that there are three persons and one being. I believe that intellectually because my Bible tells me. Do I understand it? No. My mind simply cannot go that far. And it wouldn't matter how many letters you had after your name. It wouldn't matter if you were a a genius like Einstein. You could not and cannot grasp three persons in one being. And I think we all have the same problem with resurrection, with life beyond the grave. But God doesn't insist that we understand it. What he insists on is that we believe it, whether we understand it or not. Meanwhile, as Mary struggled with this scene, Peter and John spoke of what they had witnessed inside the tomb in verses 6 and 7. The linen clothes and the napkin wrapped together in a place by itself. Now, this incredible detail signifies to us, amongst other things, the sheer orderliness of what had taken place in that grave. The sheer orderliness of it. The linen clothes and the napkin wrapped together in a place by itself. Everything demonstrated design, purpose, control. You see, Jesus didn't throw off these grave clothes, but deliberately removed them, deliberately placed them in this order. But none of that seemed to help poor Mary Magdalene, because we read in verse 11, she stood without weeping. And on glancing into the tomb, she saw this amazing scene. Verse 12, two angels in white sitting. Now notice how this is described for us. One at the head, one at the feet of where Jesus had laid. Why are we told that? Why are we told that? Let's make sure that we grasp the picture. These angels placed themselves as deliberately as Jesus had placed the clothes in the first place. You see, they created the illusion that Jesus was still there. 
that he was still lying between the two lots of clothes and the two angels. But all the gap between those two angels proved and demonstrated was that Jesus wasn't there at all. He wasn't there at all. He could have put up banner over this scene between those two angels, a banner claiming what he himself announced in Revelations 1, I am he that liveth, was dead, behold, I'm alive forevermore. He's not here. He's risen. What glorious news that is, my friends. And to this day, that empty grave is the twin, the inseparable twin of the cross of Calvary. We also know that the angel asked, we learn this from uh, Luke chapter 24, mentioned this before, why seek ye the living among the dead? Then looking at Mary Magdalene, the angel further asked here in verse 13, woman, why weepest thou? Now, however difficult the scene of that empty grave was, this was not a moment to weep. This was rather a moment to celebrate. Oh, it was a dark, dark night. But as the psalmist says, joy cometh in the morning. This was a moment to celebrate, a moment of joy. This empty grave, my friends, is the best news this world has ever heard. It's the seal. It's the confirmation of God's satisfaction with the finished work of the sin-bearer of Calvary. In other words, God saw that Jesus of Nazareth had done everything precisely as was in the plan of salvation to save people like us from hell. Now, let me make a comment here. We often hear, and I and ministers like me often say that Jesus saves us from our sins. When we ponder this, we realize that's not altogether accurate. Jesus doesn't save us from our sins as much as he saves us actually from God. He saves us from God. He saves us from the condemnation of God's law. He saves us from the curse of God's law. He saves us from the justice that would otherwise cast us into hell. And that's the glorious message of this empty grave. A living, risen Savior before whom we must cast ourselves for mercy and forgiveness. Oh, do you understand this, my friends? Those of you who are not born-again Christians here this evening, do you understand 
your great need to grasp this with both hands, with your heart, with your soul, with your mind. You urgently need to close in with Christ to save you from God. Let me move on thirdly to look at Mary Magdalene meeting the risen Christ. Verse 14. She saw Jesus standing and knew not it was Jesus. Now, on at least two occasions during his 40-day resurrection appearances, God prevented people deliberately from recognizing Jesus. Though he was standing in front of them, God prevented them from recognizing him here with Mary Magdalene, and again the two on the road to Emmaus. We read in Luke 24 about these two, their eyes were holden. Their eyes were holden. Now, just as I'm passing comment and perhaps something for yourselves to think about, isn't it strange that there's no word here and no sign here, nor when the two on the road to Emmaus saw him, of the wounds of crucifixion. Wounds that evidently doubting Thomas saw later on. Why not? Even if they didn't recognize Jesus, even if Mary Magdalene did, how could she miss the wounds? They were there in his hands, weren't they? They were there in his feet, weren't they? The marks of the crown of thorns were on his head, weren't it? wasn't it? I'm going to leave that with yourselves. Meanwhile, here Mary Magdalene saw the physical figure of Jesus, but God kept her from recognizing even his voice. Now, despite her familiarity with him, when he asked her a question in verse 14, the end of the verse, she knew not that it was Jesus. And in her confused mind, we read in verse 15, she supposed him to be the gardener. She thought it was somebody different altogether. Now, evidently, my friends, Something highly unusual is going on here. Something highly unusual. Her ongoing ignorance of the resurrection emerges in verse 15 again. Tell me, she said, where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. In her mind, Jesus was still dead. But you see, she had to learn a dead savior is no savior at all. She needed, you need. I need a living Lord and Savior. Meanwhile, God's timing, perfect as usual, stepped in the moment that Jesus spoke her name, God simultaneously removed the veil from our eyes. Verse 16, one word. Mary. In that instance, resurrection, light, and power flooded into her mind. Flooded into her mind. Verse 16 again. She turned herself and said to him, Rabboni. She was seeing him in all his glory. There he was, standing in front of her. 
This was the Jesus who freed her from demonic, demonic possession. This was the Jesus that taught her in the things of God. This was the Jesus that showed a love that she had never known before. He was alive. He was risen from the dead. He was her Savior. He was her Lord. He was her God. But her lessons in spirituality and theology had just begun. Her mind went back to her former relationship. Whereas her Rabboni insisted she must now enter his new world. A world where he wasn't any longer Jesus of Nazareth, the friend she knew. So in her attempts to live in the past, where Jesus, the man of Nazareth, was familiar to her, is met by a rebuke from her risen Savior. As she tries to embrace him, or at least the suggestion is that she tried to embrace him, he responded in verse 17, don't touch me. Touch me not. But others would touch him. In fact, he, he would ask Doting Thomas later on to do so very deliberately in verse 27. So why doesn't he let Mary touch him? We should learn from this, my friends, that we all need lessons that are specific to where we are at with God. The lessons I receive from God are not the lessons you need. And the lessons you receive from God are not the lessons I need. Mary Magdalene must realize she is now in a new relationship with her Savior. He's not merely her friend now. Of course, she's continuing as her friend. He's now her Lord. He's now our God. He's now our Savior. Wasn't this the profession that blurted out of Thomas's lips when this was revealed to him? My Lord and my God. So Jesus said to him, verse 17 again, I am not yet ascended to my Father. In other words, my transition from earthly role to heavenly glory is not yet complete. And although his earthly mission is now accomplished, his coronation, which we were mentioning in the morning briefly, his coronation on the heavenly throne was yet to take place. And to be the Savior and the mediator and the intercessor of his people requires that he must, as we were singing a moment ago, ascend up on high, ascend to God's right hand. O thou o hast, O Lord, most glorious, ascended up on high. And there, my friends, 
the coronation took place. The crown was placed upon his head. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. Oh, Mary Magdalene mustn't think that Jesus was severing their special relationship. Oh, no. Look how he speaks to her. Again, verse 17. I ascend to my father and your father. I ascend to my God and your God. He was confirming to her. The bond between them was stronger than ever. He's my father, but he's also your father. He's my God, but he's also your God. He was embracing her. He was embracing her in his role as the head of his own church, the supreme ruler of his people. As if he were saying to her, I am ascending. But remember this, Mary, you are engraven on the palms of my hand. And by his actions here, the Lord Jesus also embraces all of us who believe in him. On this awesome occasion, he says to her, again, verse 17, Now, go to my brethren. Go to my brethren and tell them. Share this glorious news with my brethren. With my brothers and sisters, indeed, share this glorious news as he's told the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel who to, to every creature. To every creature. And what glorious news that is, my friends. The risen, crowned Savior has provided for us for you and for me here this evening, a salvation that is perfect in itself. A salvation that requires nothing from you. You cannot contribute to your own salvation. It is all of grace. It is all of God. All that is required of you is that you surrender to the claims of a sovereign God and of a loving Savior, I would urge you, children and adults alike, those of you who haven't already done so, believe in him, trust in him, cast yourselves upon his love, upon his mercy, and upon his grace. Amen. Let us pray. We thank Thee, O Lord, once again for this beautiful story of a sinner saved by grace, having her eyes opened to see the beauty and the comeliness of the one that loved her and gave himself for her. We thank Thee for those present here this evening who have had that experience, 
who have met Christ in his risen glory, who have bowed the knee to him, and who confess with the tongue that he indeed is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we beg of thee, Lord, not to leave anyone present here this evening in the darkness and ignorance of unforgiven sin. Be merciful and gracious to each one. Take us now home in safety for Jesus' sake. Amen.